Good morning, dear intriguer. I've got one thing on my mind today. Jonathan Vero, a 39-year-old French firefighter and stuntman who set a new world record by running 272 meters while he was on fire. Literally on fire. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the Israeli government's ongoing judicial overhaul. Then later, we talk Thailand. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing very well here, Ethan. I'm uh, I was energized by our off mic conversation about the the English football and catching up on all things Arsenal. Your your one true love, and I, I know that last time we chatted, you were talking about you how you were on a bit of a summer break, and you think you don't get much of a break. These guys literally just stopped playing like yesterday, and they're back at it. I know. I, I mean. I, I always uh, regret how quickly time flies, but I cannot wait for the next month to just disappear so we can get back to, to Premier League football. But, John, more important things to cover. I, I think as much as we're fascinated by the Premier League, we're, we're perhaps more fascinated by the idea that a country's in transition, you know, shifting from one set of alliances to another or from one political system to another. Mm-hmm. So I, I think... For us and others, it's been hard not to pay attention to what's been happening in Israel. Yeah, I think that's a great way to frame it, actually. Countries in in transition. Um, I think these transitions tend to get people's attention because the outcomes are so difficult to predict, but they're so important, right? Uh, you know, In Israel's case, the, the transition that I think we're talking about here is whether Israel is shifting from you know a very robust democracy into something that might be described as sort of like a competitive authoritarian system where the power of an individual or a, a political block becomes just so deeply entrenched uh, that uh, the opposition is a kind is kind of you know lame duck mm, yeah just for for those non-political scientists the the competitive authoritarianism <laughs> idea think think Turkey perhaps as a, as a prime example right uh, so we'll, we'll catch up catch us up to speed what's the mechanism that might slide Israel away from democracy? Yeah, I think, well, we've talked about the broader issue before um, earlier this year, which is this judicial overhaul that's been proposed by the Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and his hodgepodge right-wing coalition. Um, the overall the overhaul, for, to catch people up, has, has some broad components. And the first is to kind of give elected officials greater control over the panel that appoints the judges of, the, of Israel's top court, the Supreme Court. Um, and then the second kind of element is to limit the power of the Supreme Court to amend laws that the government passes. So the overarching reform is to give the government of the day far more control over the judiciary of Israel. Um, now to opponents, and there are, there are a lot of opponents, um, including former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who uh, I think he said that Israel was on the brink of dictatorship, which might be a little bit overegging the pudding, but he, you know, it's, he's he's a, he's a man who would know, right? He's been in the guts of this stuff for decades. Um, but for those folks, these reforms amount to a judicial coup um, that would allow Netanyahu and his coalition to pass laws that, you know, endanger the rights of uh, minorities, promote interests of religious Jews at the expense of secular ones, entrench uh, control over Israeli control over large parts of the West Bank, which, you know, that's the area that Palestinians hope will one day be their country, their sovereign country. Um, so I think all of these issues, are they, they drive so much to the heart of Israel's politics. Um, and that's why you saw hundreds of thousands of Israelis hit the streets um, earlier this year. 
day after day to protest against the reforms. Yeah, and they, they were sort of successful. I mean, the government, after all, suspended the overhaul plan in late March. Mm-hmm. But even then, even when they suspended it or delayed it, Netanyahu said that it was merely a delay, that they would go back to it again eventually after they found, and here are Netanyahu's words, found a broad consensus. Yeah, I, I remember him saying that. it was kind of like the kind of tactical retreat at the time. Exactly. Um, but but they haven't found that consensus in the meantime. Uh, but it hasn't stopped them earlier this week. They've restarted the the push to get the reforms passed. Um, I think this time they're focusing on a particular piece of Israeli jurisprudence, this idea that there's a reasonableness clause um, which allows the Supreme Court to kind of amend or block government decisions that they find unreasonable. Um, vague, which you- a vague term as much of the Israeli political system is, but that's right. that's an issue for another time. <laughs> and you can kind of see the problems that politicians are going to have with it if a court can kind of, you know, stop their decisions if they see them, find them unreasonable. Um, and, and the court has done that pretty recently, right? In January, I think it was January, the, the court ruled that Netanyahu's appointment of a convicted tax cheat as one of his ministers was unreasonable in the extreme, to use their language. So, Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, again, it's, the, it's not... A, it's it's not unreasonable to think that that's unreasonable, I think. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, that's the context. And on Tuesday, the government um, took the first of what are three votes to get rid of that reasonableness or unreasonableness clause. Um, it passed along party lines, as you'd expect, and had furious protests inside the Israeli's par- parliament building um, and obviously tons of protests around uh, the building as well. And not just outside the building, across the country, blocking highways, roads to the airport. A lot of the same stuff we saw back earlier this year when this happened for the first time. Um, You know, there's plans for a nationwide strike um, and they're hoping to bring the country to a standstill to really kind of bring home to the government that they cannot pass these reforms without Israel kind of blocking it as a people. Yeah. Well, I mean, the coalition says they're determined to push this legislation through by, mm. by their summer recess at the end of the month. And John, this time, I, I imagine they really will get the reform through. I mean, as we've said on the show, and as you just said, uh, this coalition in power is made up of so many disparate blocks. There are religious yeah. organizations, there are religious parties, there are secular parties, there are hard right wingers, there are moderates. The judicial overhaul was one of the only things holding that coalition together so they have to get it through right on the on the domestic on the domestic front i think that's 100 percent true um but you know i think it's interesting that we've kind of seen the emergence of a of an external force as well that's starting to kind of bind that coalition you talk about together as well um you know it's growing militancy in the west bank um especially around the city or more accurately in the sprawling refugee camp in the west bank um known as jinin or the city's known as jinin and there's this huge refugee camp there. Um, these these militants are well-funded, well-armed. They're responding to essentially a power vacuum of, you know, Israel's kind of stuck or, you know, uh, tenuous domestic politics and then the failure of the West Bank government, the Palestinian Authority, to t- kind of take control. And I think these forces are starting to bind this Israeli political coalition together as well. Um, you know, I think, I think the second point that I just said about the Palestinian Authority kind of giving up their power and creating a bit of a vacuum there, that's really important because I think in the past, Israel, Israeli domestic politics, the government has really relied on the Palestinian Authority to kind of manage that external West Bank security issue so it doesn't infiltrate 
Israeli domestic yeah. politics too well much. Well um, said, because it's so it's so destabilizing yeah. to to the Israeli body politic that it, they kind of exactly they right. kind of uh, outsourced it to the to the Palestinian Authority. <laughs> yeah, I mean exactly. I'd said like you keep it under control, and we won't you know we won't pay too much attention to it. But as support for the Palestinian Authority has dropped, and they've become weaker, um, and funding for the Palestinian Authority has also dried up. It must be it must be noted. Um, the Palestinian Authority has just lost its ability to control that security environment. Um, so Israel, from its perspective, feels like it has to take matters into its own hands, um, and and it's done so uh, in brutal fashion. Earlier this month, uh, Israel conducted its largest West Bank air assault in two decades and engaged militants in hours of firefights. Folks might remember reading that in the news. Um, and and residents of Jenin, this this city with the you know where I think is widely regarded to be the kind of hotbed for these militants, um, they said the city looked like a total war zone. I think I think something else to note is that it's kind of it's not just a battle between militant and Israeli soldiers, good and evil, all these kinds of things. It's there's been tons of interethnic violence in the West Bank itself between Palestinian civilians and Israeli settlers who live in the West Bank but are obviously Israeli. Um, and they've been empowered by the rhetoric and policies of Netanyahu's uh, fairly right-wing government. So you've got just these really difficult issues that are all kind of coming to a head right now. John, I follow this stuff pretty closely, as you know. And there's a real sense among Israel watchers that the country is really on the brink. I mean, you mentioned Ehud Barak's mm. line earlier, but that's a pretty widely held sentiment. The U.S. ambassador to Israel said this week that Israel risked, quote, going off the rails. Even the figurehead president has said Israel was on the brink of a civil war. To hear you say it, it might be on the brink of a wider regional war. Yes, I I always like to kind of try and tone down the drama about this kind of stuff because it's very easy to say, oh, it's almost, you know, it's on the brink of, you know, catastrophe. But we also can't ignore the signs. And there is a ton of internal and external stress building in Israel and around Israel right now. Um, I think back when the government tried to pass this judicial reform for the first time, um, and then they pulled it back. There was this hope that it would be a bit of a release valve, a bit of a you know a foot off the gas kind of um, mechanism. You, I think you and I were quite skeptical that that would be the case, and it turns out that we were right. The government's come back and is is turning up the heat again. Um, whatever comes next, I think is anybody's guess. But if you're right when you said that you think that the reform this time will get passed, I I can't imagine that the Israeli opposition is going to take it quietly. So you know all bets are off then. Today's show is sponsored by Flavier. Flavier helps you curate your home bar with the classic, the crafty, and the rare gem spirits that match your personal taste. You can sample and train your palate with themed tasting sets, which are guaranteed to help you find your new favorites. Flavier is the best way to experience the spirit of exploration. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So, John, we've got another chance for you to share your thoughts on a piece of news that may have flown under the radar. You covered the global oil market on Tuesday's show. What's on your mind this time around? 
Well, I'm I'm thrilled that you've ditched the Jonalog name for it, and there's no mention of that today. So just for long, now, I, long it's a delay. So. I'm delaying it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm taking a page out of Nenyahu's playbook. Oh, We're boy. doing a delay. We're suspending it. Yeah, and you'll be back just for the time and being. And I'll have to protest it. Um, <laughs> but well, this this uh, I think there's something interesting coming out of Thailand today, Ethan. Uh, you know, we don't focus on Thailand a lot, but you might remember back in May we chatted about Thai elections. Um, and the surprising result that opposition parties really dominated that election. Uh, for folks not aware, a bit of context, Thailand has a, you know, essentially been ruled by a, a military junta since a coup back in 2014. Um, and so May's election was surprising because there was a real trouncing of the military-backed parties in Thailand. Um, and I think it was a demonstration that the Thai folks, you know, they want to move beyond this decade, almost decade of, of military rule. Um, but since that election in May, the leader of the party who won the most seats, a, a chap by the name of Peter Limjaroenrat, and yes, I've been practicing that, um, <laughs> he's, he, he has to try and negotiate with uh, other parties to form a coalition that will elect him in the Thai parliament. So Thai politicians have to go and then vote him to be the prime minister. Um, and the news this week is that uh, in the Thai parliament, uh, he didn't get the votes he needed in the in a vote to become the prime minister. So pro army senators in Thai in the Thai parliament voted against him becoming uh, the next prime minister. He he secured three hundred twenty four votes out of a seven hundred fifty member parliament, um, and he he is quoted. Peter Lindjaronrat was quoted in Bloomberg saying, "We accept the results, but we're not giving up, and we'll strategize to consolidate the voices to reach." 376 in the next vote. So he he's not giving up and he's, he's, he's coming back. This is a great topic, John. And it actually dovetails very nicely with our shared love of political transitions. Uh, right. Where do you think things are going from here? Yeah, I think it's a good framing. It's, it's a super important time for Thailand. Uh, you know, Thailand has the second largest economy in Southeast Asia after Indonesia. And it's an important country in, in what we all know is a very important region. So fr from here, I, I suppose there are kind of three paths forward. The first is that uh, Lim Jaroenrat wins the next vote he, he just alluded to in parliament and becomes the, the next Thai prime minister. Um, he's pro-democracy. He's a modernizer. So I think the media and outside watchers are kind of cheering him on in that way. Um, but if I'm honest, from everything I've seen, I don't think that looks particularly likely at the moment. The opposition to him seems... Uh, pretty united against him becoming prime minister. So the second option then is that the military the works behind the scenes to kind of maintain control over the country via its military-backed politicians. N not a coup because they're still in charge, obviously, but rather kind of rigging the system and the institutions to ensure Thailand doesn't head back to what is a more genuine democracy. Um, you know, I think there are already suggestions that uh, Peter Lim Jaronrat and his party might be disqualified uh, over their desire to amend the country's, you know, famously strict royal defamation laws. So, you know, it's a possibility that Thailand, I think, ends up with a PM that isn't the leader of the most popular party in the country, which would be unfortunate. Um, but the third option, I think, uh, is that this uncertainty just drags on for a lot longer. Um, you know, the pro-democracy Coalition sticks together and keeps voting for Peter Lim Jaroenrat. Um, and then the pro-army group keep blocking him and preventing him from becoming the PM. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on Thai political procedure at all, so I don't know how that would be resolved. But that kind of stalemate, uh, you know, could could prolong the uncertainty in Thailand. Uh, that's never good for, you know, economics and political outcomes, right? Um, so I think there will be another vote. That vote 
uh, in Parliament to see if he can get up as Prime Minister next week. So we will be uh, keeping our eye on it. Yeah. I mean, just looking at that vote count, 199 abstentions, that's more than a quarter of the voting right. members. Will they go one way or another? We'll have to see. But there's, that's a lot. That's a big chunk of potentially winnable votes next week. Exactly. It's it's a long way from over. Um, what's on your mind, Ethan? What's what's what have you been reading? I want to talk about Guantanamo Bay. Something ah yeah, relatively close to home. It's the U.S. military base in that tiny corner of Cuba. I think Guantanamo is fascinating for for a ton of reasons. I mean, most people will have heard it's sort of synonymous with. Uh, uh, the history of the, the war on terror. It's the site where yeah. detainees from the U.S. war on terror were taken and in many cases were, were tortured. But more than that, another thing that I find interesting is that it's a U.S. military outpost leased on the territory of a hostile foreign government, which has since 1959 called it illegal. It's kind of mind boggling. Uh, and that discord came into view last week when a nuclear-powered U.S. submarine docked at the base. Yeah, I have always found that super strange that, that the U.S. is kind of leasing from Cuba, a country that it's tried to invade and has had, you know, <laughs> never had good relations with. But, you know, it, it's one of those anachronistic parts of uh, of foreign policy. But, uh, you know, a nuclear-powered U.S. submarine docking at a base is another step. So I can't imagine Cuba was overly thrilled with that yeah well that that on that first piece it all dates back as so many things do to the spanish-american war of 1898 john which you would know if you if you read up on your history uh, yeah. obviously off the top of my head yeah <laughs> but yes no no cuba was not pleased at all they uh released a statement calling it a uh, provocative escalation but here's where where things get Strange, at least, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, fascinating and, and, mm. and, and uh, gets to the heart of the issue. On the other side of the island, the northern side, a Russian ship apparently carrying humanitarian cargo was docking at the same time. And John, don't forget what we've covered on this show already a few weeks, months ago, that China has been working to establish a spy station in Cuba. So mm. even though several U.S. presidents, including current U.S. President Joe Biden have promised to transfer the prisoner population off the island, close the detention center, which, to be clear, has not yet happened. From here, from here, I'm saying the naval base certainly won't be going anywhere so long as Cuba is this hotbed of great power competition. Uh, so I suspect we'll be hearing a lot more about that going forward. Yeah, I am currently reading the books about Lyndon Johnson's life and I'm at the part where he's the vice president to John F. Kennedy and the Bay of Pigs drama has just happened in this book. And this is giving me strong Bay of Pigs kind of vibes, you know, this this country off the coast being a a, a, a real, almost like a, like a proxy battle for power between great countries. So I think, yeah, you're right. We'll, it'll be something that we haven't heard the last of. Uh, I look forward to... Uh to hearing how much you like those books in a decade when you finish them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on, John. Cheers. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, it's crossword day over at the International Intrigue newsletter, and we're testing your knowledge of world leaders. And since you're such a loyal listener, I'll give you one answer for free. Merkel. But the rest is up to you to figure out. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday. <laughs>